Welcome to It's a Music Thing, a podcast about music. Each week, your host tries to bring stories from artists and others in the music industry. Go ahead and subscribe on iTunes. Check us out on all social media. Instagram, at It's a Music Thing MB. Facebook, It's a Music Thing. And the website is itsamusicthing.com. If you feel so inclined, you can drop your host, Dwayne Larson, an email. It's a music thing, MB at gmail.com. Without further ado, here is your host, Dwayne Larson. and welcome back to It's a Music Thing, the podcast. I'm your host, 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 Dwayne Larson. On today's show, I'm super excited. We are continuing on with the series of talking to people that work behind the scenes that make all this stuff kind of go when, you know, when it's going, when hopefully it'll be going again. But this episode, I'm super stoked. I've known this guy for a very long time and he's got the best stories. And some of them, you know, he can't quite uh, talk about on air, but he is amazing. He's a great person. He's seen a lot. He's done a lot in this city for this scene. You, you, maybe you know him. Maybe you don't. You've definitely seen him working at the Burt in the box office or before that at the Garrick as part of Union Events and Live Nation. And who am I talking about? I am talking about Ruben Ramalero. I hope I said his name right. I'm I'm so bad. I just call him Ramalamalamalamala. Anyway, Ruben Ruben has been around the scene for a long time and has, you know, started out playing in bands and then has worked his way up. Has you you'll listen. You'll hopefully you're going to listen to the podcast. Um in this we get into a lot of stuff uh, and we don't even scratch the surface, I'm sure of a quarter of the stuff that Ruben has seen and done. But, you know, like I said, started out playing in bands, got into working with Small Man Records here in Winnipeg. RIP, Fist in the Air, whatever you want to call it. I love Small Man Records, put out some of my favorite records ever. And then from there, has continued to work hard, worked with Manitoba Music, um, Union Events, Live Nation, and now is essentially the the talent buyer and is not essentially is the talent buyer for the Burton Cummings theater for true North. So like I said, us, us old punks are starting to run everything around here, which is great. And I, I really appreciate Ruben, 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 Ruben for taking the time out to talk to me. This one's a long one. So buckle in, enjoy, learn, you know, maybe you'll learn something. Hopefully if you don't, that's cool. You're listening to me talk, but as always, a big thank you to the Sorrells for providing the music at the beginning. Uh, they have a new EP out in the description. You can see where to go get it. I highly recommend going to get it. Also, big thank you to the WPG or the WPG magazine for bringing me in as part of their podcast family. They've got a lot of stuff going on over there, a lot of great content. Go check them out. Again, in the description, click the link, go see them. And we've got a sponsor. Holy crap. Look at us. I'm rolling in money right now. I'm I'm really not, but 
yeah, big thank you to Dusty Wax Records. Head over. They just um, released the re-release, I guess, of two Guttermouth albums. Uh, one variant, the Splatter variant, I believe is sold out. By the time this comes out, the other one might be sold out too. I'm not sure. But head over to DustyWaxRecords.com. We also have a... Um, uh, what do you want to call it? a contest going on over at the it's music thing Instagram I was gonna say website Instagram page go over there check out how to win I highly recommend it these records are gonna sell out if you're a fan of Guttermouth, you know you, you probably want these if you're not maybe tell a friend that, that would I'd appreciate that because it helps it helps you know but anyway enough of the me blathering on I've blathered on for long enough here is my conversation with Ruben from True North. All right. I guess uh, first and foremost, who am I talking to today? Uh, this is Ruben Ramalero. I work with True North Sports and Entertainment, uh, essentially buying shows at the Burton Cummings Theater. And I mean, I've known Ruben for, we actually first met. I don't know if you know how we first met or if you remember me when we first met. Was it through my brother? Uh, it was not through your brother. I guess I technically knew your brother before you. Yeah. Um, and then I didn't put that connection together until I heard the last name. And then I'm like, yeah, you're Fred. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, but it was when you were working for small man records. Ah, the heyday. I, I came back in like stuffed envelopes and records and CDs and stuff for, I think a couple times, but that, that's the first time I met you. That was like the busy gig. Like it always needed to be done in that place. Mm-hmm. Where we would have interns coming in. I started as an intern there and, you know, half of what I would do, like one day you'd show up and be like, oh, here's the Warner shipment. And you'd have 80 boxes and they'd be like, okay, can somebody move these to the basement? And it's like, you're the only person who doesn't work standing there. And they're like, yeah, I'll move them to the basement. Sure. <laughs> and my first question to all the guests that I ever have on the show so far has been, do you remember your first memory of music before, like not that was like a nursery rhyme or a lullaby that really captured your attention? Uh, yeah. Like I grew up in like a house with immigrant parents. And so they were never really into music. A lot of people always say they hear music from their parents, but that wasn't the case with me. It was more so my brother, my brother being nine years older than me, you know, when I was, you know, six and 91, he was, listening to Guns N' Roses and Metallica because he was 16. And so it was that. And then I really do remember watching much music all the time. Mm -hmm. Like that is the memory, like everything from like spotlights to intimate interactives. Like when I came home, we would, my brother would have the TV on and he would watch much music. So I did too. Was, was there anything from much music? Like, and it, I, I was the same way as you. Was there any one performance or even video from like back in the day that like, it's just that nugget that sticks in your head to this day? A hundred percent soul asylums, runaway train, <laughs> especially like watching that as a six year old and kids being snatched up by the elderly. And, you know, it's, it's a great song with like a great message, but it was terrifying to watch as a kid. I'm sure so I remember it always sticks out to me. I still don't like hearing that song. I was going to say, you still walk across the street when you see an older person coming towards you. You're just like, Nope, <laughs> I'm going to go over here. I, I saw that video. I know what happens. Yeah. Like, do you remember that video? Like there's a woman who snatches a baby out of like a stroller and just runs with it. I honestly can't. I, I remember the song because I had it on 
CD or something, but I can't. I'm going to have to YouTube it after this because that sounds terrifying. Yeah, you know. So, and so, yeah, uh, much music all the time. That's so you're born and raised Winnipeg? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the only one. My family came over here in like 81. So my brother and sister were immigrants too, but I was the one who got born over here. So, yeah. And so, I mean, growing up, you said that um, your family wasn't very musical other than, you know, your brother putting on much music and listening to GNR and who knows what else. <clears throat> um, when did, did you start playing anything? Uh, yeah. You know, like my brother had guitars. Uh, hilariously enough, there's this great story about my dad. He used to work at a place called Lisbon Bakery on Sargent. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was like the first place or first place he got a job when he came to Winnipeg. And one day, two guys came in off the street and we're like, hey, man, do you want to buy a guitar? And he's like working behind the counter like, what? Like, no. And they were like, no, nah, here, it's a great, it's an electric guitar. It's this uh, Gibson SG. And so the, he was like, well, I don't know. What do you want for it? And they're like, 50 bucks. And honestly, I don't even know what it was worth at the time. This being like late 80s, 87 or so. And uh, But he bought it. He bought it and he gave it to my brother. So my brother had this Gibson SG, which is technically worth like a thousand bucks at mm -hmm. least. So uh, sadly, obviously stolen, but uh, so he gave it to my brother and my brother played it. I think he took some lessons or something, but one day, I don't know if it was Nirvana or whatever it was, but he broke the headstock off the guitar. So we had this gorgeous electric guitar sitting in our house for years, just broken. Mm -hmm. And so when I was like seven, my parents bought me an acoustic, but I never really played it. And it was when you got to junior high, we actually had a guitar class. So that's when you like met people who like knew instruments and mm -hmm. tell you things. And, and I was like, yeah, I got an electric guitar in the basement. And so they came over and they're like, whoa, it's like a Gibson. This is an awesome, like, that's like Angus Young's guitar, man. And I was like, okay. So I put the headstock on with like wood glue. <laughs> <laughs> so then when you tied the strings on and you start tuning it, you just see this thing go like, and just pop off. And so I was 12 at the time. And I really wanted to fix this guitar because everybody was telling me how good of a guitar it was. And I don't remember the guy's name, but I went everywhere. I went to like uh, Ultimate Guitar Works, Marshalls, like a bunch of shops on like my side of town in Winnipeg. And then one guy at Long McQuaid was like, oh, you got to go see Gary. I'll just call him Gary. I don't mm. know his name. People in the industry know this guy though, because I go to this guy's house at like 12 and he opens the door and he's got three fingers on each hand like from looked like woodworking accidents yeah and here i was a kid like and he's looking at me, he's like yeah i could fix this like you know 200 bucks and oh, i was geez. like that's like all the money i have yeah um and i was just like is this guy ripping like am i gonna give him 200 bucks and just lose the guitar too yeah but i paid for it and then a week later it was ready and i still have it today nice. it's like the best reworked finish of all time and I played it, you know, I played all the time still, even, you know, not playing in bands, but just fiddling around. So did you take, um, you said in like junior high, did you take guitar lessons in? Like, did you join band or? <laughs> uh, they just had a guitar class. So oh, I think guitar I, class. You know, yeah, we played like, you know, uh, Joy to the World in some gym assembly at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but then I remember going, there was this place called Marshall's. And my parents were like, yeah, you can go for guitar lessons. So 
they signed me up and you go into this room with some hippie and the guy's just like, Hey, what do you want to learn? And I was just like, I don't know. And he's like, well, why don't you bring me a song and I'll teach it to you or whatever. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I remember bringing um, raise a family by lag wagon. It's got like, and he was just like, Oh yeah, this is easy. So he showed me how to play that. And that was like the last guitar lesson I ever took the first and last and was it around this time that you started going to shows too? Because I mean, you you've been in in the music industry for a while, for a good long while now. When did you start kind of delving into shows? Well, that was the funny part of it all. So you know, we I had a guitar, learned how to play like three chords, and the first thing you do is like tell your friends like, "Hey, do you guys want to jam? Like, you know, we'll hang out, play some songs." Yeah. So you do. You go over your buddy's house and you play Green Day and next thing you know somebody's written a song and everybody thinks like oh this is awesome we get to go you know like let's show people this song and so when i was a kid when i was like 13 or so we recorded a demo Ooh. and we played all the time we would play aussies we would play the west end we would play community center shows um the horseshoe cabaret which is now giant tiger behind the bird used to be mm -hmm. like this country club and stuff so uh yeah strangely enough when i was like 13 to like 15 we played in a band called last call and yeah it was just it was weird because you know we weren't really good at all but for some reason we got shows and what what was the first show you went to not oh, that... and and not playing like just what was you know arena small show i mean i get see this is when i get in trouble because when i tell people what show they're like think like small intimate little one it's like just what what concert was your first one you know one of my best memories actually was seeing the shambles which was like jay fulmore's ex like before they were the rock band they were the shambles so like them and mr bigglesworth which was dave grabowski who plays in sights and sounds and playing six city and uh just a bunch of like other local bands like uh, the Remains, um, which was like Buck Geringer before he went into uh, into the Harlots. So for some reason, we were really exposed to like the local music scene really early. Like, you know, and that was also the other like Dorian, who played in Six City, he played in a band called Fuck That. And, you know, we would go see them all the time. They were, I thought they were just one of the best bands in the city at the time. And, and and then we were lucky enough to play with them. So you'd go to those or the Broadway community center shows. You'd see like the Pookies and Greg Rikus's band, Lacking Intelligence. And hilariously enough, like so many of those guys are still around mm -hmm. playing today. But you don't see as many kids out today, which is a shame. But and yeah, it, it was something we did a lot. Would you? Would that be because I mean, there's not a ton of kind of all ages venues that you can really go to anymore. Like there's the park theater and the west end and the west and end i don't i mean i guess it's always that strange thing like once you grow out of it you're like do people still rent community centers to do shows mm. like you gotta think somebody's still renting them out somewhere i hope so or at least doing like basement shows not that i got a chance to get to too many basement shows but they were fun the ones that i was at yeah you know like even as a kid we played a, a couple house parties but it was mainly those community center shows, which is where, you know, you'd meet like the kids from Selkirk that came into town mm -hmm. to like 
watch the resistance and stuff like that or um you know where's that area in saint james i forget what it's called but there's a deer lodge deer lodge community center okay yeah and so there's a there was i don't know it was so vibrant at that time Mm -hmm. right there were so many options back then and i don't know why there aren't any more because i remember i mean i grew up in estevan and i did shows there and it was like same kind of thing i approached the uh the legion hall folks and i'm like hey can i put on this concert here and they didn't really know what to expect and i mean the the lady that ran at lorna was was a wonderful person and kind of came to me after the first show and she's like so you know, I realized kids are drinking outside. So can you like clean up after that and stuff? And I was like, yeah, sure. Like she had no issues with it. And it was short of like putting on the shows. It was the, I mean, shows are sort of fun to do, but not when it's your money. Um, it, it was, it was a great time. Well, and that's the funny thing. Like with community center shows, you know, rent would be like a hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. Even back in the day, the West End was like, pay the door guy and pay the sound guy and you get the room kind of thing. Or you pay like 150 bucks on a weekday or 250 on the weekend. And sure, like when you were doing five buck shows, you know, trying to crack a $300 budget, you're like, oh, okay, yeah. I got to have, you know, some like, you know, if 100 people show up, I'll break even after I pay the bands and stuff. But the, uh, yeah, it's a, shame i don't know if it's like the cost of making it all happen now or i don't know and so that band last call they they you guys stuck around for a couple years and just played yeah shows I mean, that, and... was like, that was me from 13 to 15 or something like that and you know you just stop playing for a little bit or people go play in other bands and um that was just sort of how it went but yeah i guess i just think back fondly of like you know, having the chance to do those things when I was a kid. And when you're um, kind of after that band, where where does your musical kind of career take you? Did, did you start another band or was it kind of like, that was fun for now, but I got other things. Well, that, that sort of gets into like the whole rest of the story really of like in high school, then I started a band um, with some other pals and we called it Recoil. And Recoil... Um, again, played the community center shows, played the West End. And when I was in high school, there was a, uh, my teacher, uh, Darius Solomon, was dating Rob from Small Man. So you'd go to class and you'd see like a Monine poster or a Choke poster. And you'd be like, oh, I love those bands. And they're like, oh, really? That's my boyfriend's label. Oh, okay. And I was like, oh, awesome. Yeah. And I think, I don't even, I think we must have like slipped them a demo and said like, hey, <laughs> if Rob ever needs somebody to open the show, let us know. And he did. The uh, Choke was doing a CD release and he asked if we could play and we said like, yeah, absolutely. We're totally in. So we started playing a few, we played a couple shows with Choke and a couple shows with like Burn the 8-Track and you know, like Derek and Sam are still great Mm. friends today. And then at that point, you know, we were sort of playing, you'd play The Collective or something else at the time. And then when they, when everybody decided to either go to college or focus on something else, I was sort of stuck in this place of like, oh, I still want to do something music. So I asked Small Man, I asked Rob and Jason, who I'd sort of met a couple times through the shows, saying like, hey, do you need anybody to do anything at the label? Like, happy to help do whatever. And they were like, yeah. 
if you want to come stuff envelopes, by all means, come down. So, so you never had any kind of like grandeurs of like, hey, I'm going to grow up and be a rock star and, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, no. everyone hopes, but. Yeah. And I think it sadly became the opposite of it. It was like, I wanted to work in music. I didn't know what, if it was going to be, you know, working at a record label or management or I didn't even think of doing shows at the time or anything like that. But I was sort of just like so shy about the band mm -hmm. like i would never want to be like oh yeah definitely like here's my band it wasn't something i was super proud of i enjoyed it like i had fun with our my friends and everything yeah but it wasn't so then that's sort of where I, would, I think i just set it aside after that and saying like because you even meet you meet so many people in the industry mm -hmm. who are band guys and stuff and who are like hey man check out my demo and if it's terrible you never want to say it's terrible right yeah. you never want to like crush someone's dream but then sadly there's like laughter behind the scenes at people and you're just like ah, i don't want that to be me i'm and yeah that's fair i mean i'm laughing at you now because you played with one of canada's worst bands and chokes a terrible <laughs> fucking band they're just terrible one of my favorites i i always joke because me and my friend ricky um we saw them in regina so many times and every time they'd play because they'd come with a big contingent of this was back in the day when shows had, you know, like I'm thinking of different genres. Like they had like a metal band and then like a hardcore band. And like, let's say an acoustic person opened up. Sometimes there's hip hop thrown in. So like the, that very eclectic kind of um, bill, but anytime choke played, we just like go outside for the 30, 45 minutes. Cause I can't, I cannot deal with his voice. I just don't like it. I don't know. It was just, a, there was something about it, especially like certain songs had just great choruses mm -hmm. and the guitar parts were crazy, just prog, which was a little unheard of in punk at the time. And the, uh, there was even a moment, like I bought uh, Choke's album forward and a whole, another label put it out on vinyl. So I just bought it. And when it showed up, I accidentally still had it on like 33 RPM. <laughs> so it, it slowed it right down and it took like all the nasal out of his voice. And I sent a clip of it to Rob and Jason. I was like, see, if you guys just slowed it down, <laughs> it probably would have been huge. That was the, uh, the folks from uh, people of punk rock. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to the, one of the owners. Cause there's a, uh, he's from, Oh, I'm going to say he's just from Quebec. He's from out East. And then another guy from South Africa. I think they're, the combo i didn't talk to that guy but yeah i love what, what do you think of the um, like this kind of revival of old bands kind of repressing some of their older material and making it sometimes in some cases available for the first time on vinyl like do you buy a lot of vinyl or are you a vinyl guy i'm, I'm still a, yeah I, I love vinyl i'm i'm trying to get away from, like i don't need every variant of every blah blah like I'm, I'm very guilty of that with propaganda. I'm a huge fan. Anytime they come out with like something new, I try to snag stuff right away, mm -hmm. but I'm not like hunting it out anymore. I'd be more interested in like, um, like the thing that really made me happy was my friend Monty hooked me up with a Jughead's revenge. Um, I think images, everything, the original pressing. And that to mm -hmm. me is more interesting than, you know, having seven different variants, although I'd love it if I had the money, but. But that's the strange thing. So I'm guessing this applies to you too. Like 
I can I can see everything across my room right now. And if you took all my vinyl, like seventy five percent of them, I have the CD of as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's like so much purchasing of music you either loved or or have bought in different formats just for like the nostalgia purpose. Of mm-hmm. it. Um, I so even... yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. Like yeah, you know. I'm stoked that they press choke on vinyl. I think like listening to vinyl is a different experience, you mm-hmm. know, but, um, and it's nice to just even try to support those ideas of like how to still support artists these days. Cause like, yeah, I, 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 I love it that they're repressing some old stuff and cause it like a lot of that old stuff was before I really got into punk rock and you know the music that i love and then it's like now to get some of the original copies it costs so much money if you can even track it down and Mm -hmm. same thing applies and it's like oh do i really want to pay 75 dollars for this record like does it really mean that much to me some cases yes but for the most part not really that's always a funny thing too when you see like a billy eilish record for 45 bucks Mm. you're like really like 45 bucks for an LP like it could be 25 but they're just trying to make the money off of whatever's trendy at the time right yeah or I mean like I'm a part of a few vinyl collector stuff in on Facebook and man no effects people are they're crazy they like I know one of my friends actually has the decline the clear decline that was limited to 155 records and I just saw someone post on the no effects, whatever thing I'm a part of someone on eBay sold it for $2,500. Wow. And I'm like, who like, come on, that's ridiculous. Cause that record cost 15 back in the day. <laughs> like, I mean, if you can get the money, great, but come yeah. on. I think that was the only one I have like that is I have like a root beer colored propagandies, less talk, more rock. It was mm-hmm. like a, I think it was limited to maybe, maybe a hundred, maybe 500. And I remember I posted a photo of it online and I think it was like a week later, somebody was like, Hey man, I'll give you a hundred bucks for that record. <laughs> like, but then I got to go find the other one. It's true. It's very true. I, I just had this conversation with a friend of mine. I'm like, I'm a hundred percent a collector. I don't like, I don't get it to flip it to get, I'm like, I buy it to listen to. And then it'll stay on the shelf if I'm not listening to it. But that's me. I don't, I don't like the the flipping thing. If you do it great, but um, so then you start working at small man records, mm-hmm. right? Um, Cause I, I actually just for fun, because I mean, obviously I know you, I know kind of your, a bit of your backstory and how you came up through the music industry. I just, for fun, I Googled your name and, <laughs> and, and the first thing the popped up was your LinkedIn. So, you know, I just wrote it all down and I got it right here. Um, Did I even have small man on there? uh, You don't have small man on there that I just knew because that's where I met you. Um, But so what were kind of, had you, you hadn't obviously worked at a label before. No. And so uh, I show up and, you know, you just start schlepping. Mm -hmm. It was Rob Krause and Jason Smith. And Amelia Kern, who was the publicist at that time. Before then, it was uh, this woman named Leave, 
who was fantastic. She was from Edmonton and she lived in Winnipeg for a while before she left Montreal. So that was like while I was in a band, Leave was around and she was always the nicest. But then when I started interning, Amelia was there. So it became a thing of like, you'd show up once a week, you'd pack up some mail orders, you'd, you know, tidy up the office or something. And at the time I was in college, I was at Red River taking business admin. And, you know, the guys knew that. And at one point, I think I told Rob and I was like, hey, if you need me to do any, you know, accounting work or anything, let me know. Like I have some experience with, uh, you know, accounting software. And he was like, oh, that'd be a big help if you could input these grants and do they taught me how to do like completion reports for it so then I started working on reporting and accounting I'd bill all the bands for like management um, and then you know everything from making sure the websites had tour dates on them you know just simple tasks like something you could just ask somebody to do without having to explain too much yeah <clears throat> and at that point too when do you start working with the union Oh, okay. So that's a cool story. So Union was a production company or a promotion company out of Alberta. And so it was this guy, Naylan McMillan and Harvey Cohen. And, and they sort of were on the cusp of like punk rock and like pop punk or whatever mm. else sort of like blowing up. Right. So they had done a few shows while I was still in high school. Like they would put on face to face in Monine or they would do uh, AFI at the convention center. And so when I went to work at Smallman, I didn't even know, I didn't even know like what promoters really were yeah. like for us. Again, it was like, you'd show there was a guy who put on a show cause he was in a band and he'd give you like 50 bucks at the end of the night. Yeah. Uh, when it came to like meeting Harvey and Naylan, that was like 2005, 2006 around there. I know are those guys from Winnipeg here or no, uh, Alberta, Alberta. Yeah, so Harvey was in Calgary and Naylan was in Edmonton. And they did shows out in Alberta forever, right? Mm -hmm. Like Harvey, I think, worked at the student union at uh, the University of Calgary there. And, and Naylan sort of worked at Starlight. I forget at what point, but they also owned the Starlight Room for a while. Oh, wow. So they took over. And so they started doing punk and metal shows. And I think Rob and Jason were like, Hey, you know, we also do these shows. If you ever want to like come down to them and hang out or work a box office shift or something. So that's what I started doing. I'd do a box office gig for like 50 bucks or you'd be a runner. So you'd have to go like do the grocery shop for a show for the day. Uh, you know, pick up towels at the end of the night because mm -hmm. there's a little side gig on towels and, and so, you know, stuff like Alkaline Trio when they came with the Lawrence Arms at the Garrick. And that's sort of when the Garrick had just reopened okay. from being a movie theater and turning into a venue. So Naylan and Harvey saw this opportunity to say like, hey, we're more than just Alberta. Let's try to grow and do shows. And there was even a point where they would fly in, right? So they'd be doing like Fear Factory at the Garrick and Harvey would be flying in just to do that show. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it became this thing of like, I'd help out. And in this industry, I've really found it to be like, if you ever want to succeed, you have to find what people hate doing <laughs> and they just be like, I'll do it. Yeah. So, you know, with, with those guys, like Jason and Rob, you know, had other priorities in life and didn't want to hang out at a venue till, you know, midnight or one in the morning when it's time to settle. So I was like, I'll settle. 
you know, and they'd be like, oh, okay, uh, here's the money and just get them to sign this at the end of the night. I printed up the settlement sheet for you and everything. And I'd be like, yeah, sure. So I did that a few times. And then again, it sort of just becomes that, oh, I hate doing this. So it'd be, hey, do you just want to do a show, Ruben? Because I don't feel like going to the West End on the middle of October because it's already too cold and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, yeah. So the first show I did by myself was Sparta, Monin, oh. and Black and Black. Oh. Uh, it was a great show. Like, I love all those bands, yeah. which made it fun, but also taught me the sad realization of you barely get to watch the band because mm-hmm. you're too busy doing work backstage. Like, you know, you see me in the box office all the time. You're doing the accounting for the show. So you get to miss the awesome moments. But again, you get to sort of be a part of it, which is the fun aspect mm-hmm. of it all. Um, so yeah, that was the first time. And then I just started doing shows after that. Uh, Small Man signed Propagandy. And then, so I started there right when right before broadcasting from comeback kid came out that was like one of the bigger records that wake of the dead had just come out so maybe like 2006 2005 was when i started spending more time in the office and then i remember 2000 was it 2009 supporting cast came out yes yeah yeah so that was like a huge undertaking for the label right so it was like they worked with propaganda to make sure they had distribution everywhere and that's when we started doing like pre-sales with, you know, four figure numbers. <laughs> so much more packing and everything else. And everybody's pitching in at the same time, making sure everything works. So doing some of those like early gigs, like running your first show when it's like Monine Sparta. And I'm sure at that point you knew who these bands were. You were a fan. And like you said, it's when you kind of realize it's like, oh, I don't get to just sit in the corner and enjoy the show. I actually have to kind of put out fires and deal with stuff um were you at all like apprehensive or nervous doing like when you actually had to run the show from beginning to end and like do everything or a hundred percent yeah like there's never a time where you know when you take on something new and you're like hey just suck it up and barrel forward as much as you can uh even there's a hilarious moment that night when i was settling with monine again like i'd I'd done the settlements where you pay somebody cash and mm-hmm. you sign off on it, but I had this whole sheet broken down of like why they're getting paid what they are and here's all the expenses. And at the end of the night, their tour manager's like, oh, plus GST. And I was like, no, 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 there's no GST in the tickets. I've already taken it out, like blah, blah, blah. Like I've taken the GST. No, he's like, no, no, we have a GST number. You pay us GST. I was like, no, 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 I don't. Like I, I've seen, I've taken it all out here. And they're like, no. And like they got their agent on the phone and the agent's like, just fucking pay the GST. <laughs> and I was like, no, like, I'm pretty sure I don't have to. And, you know, one of those moments where you're 100% in the wrong, yeah. but you're just trying to get through this. And, uh, and the agent was nice enough where he was just like, look, I'll just fix this tomorrow. It's like midnight and I don't want to deal with this kid. Yeah. who doesn't know what he's doing. So you learn your lessons that way, right? Like, how do you learn how to do something if you don't end up with those bumps and scrapes along the way? Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's great to learn that, you know, early in the career rather than, you know, now with the, the level of shows you're dealing with, it's like, you know, maybe it's a five or six figure show and it's like, well, all of a sudden taxes that, that becomes a big thing. So it's like, okay, screw up on a couple hundred dollars, not a few thousand. Yeah, totally. And like the, uh, 
because there's like withholding tax when you have to deal with US bans. And so that was something with like Sparta. I was like, oh, but I got to withhold this 15%. And one of the crazy things is that, you know, when you're a bigger band, you have managers and agents explain this stuff to you. Mm -hmm. But when you're the smaller band touring through Canada for the first time, and usually Winnipeg's the first date, right? Yeah. It's like you're, you're going Winnipeg to Vancouver, and that's like the first time you've been in Western Canada, and you haven't done Toronto or Montreal yet or something. And I'm the first guy who's being like, oh, by the way, I have to withhold 15%. And when you're only making 500 bucks, somebody's just like, what? Like, no, you don't get 50. And it's like, no, it's a government thing. Like, and nobody's explained. So you have to like pull up a sheet and like show them like, here's Canada Revenue Agency. And this is what they say. And this is why I got to do it. And this is how you claim it. Or next time get a waiver, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. So that became like the big part of of what I enjoyed about shows was like learning all these details and then making sure like when you're advancing a show, like, Oh, by the way, settlement is this blah, 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 blah. And you know, if you need a waiver, here's where you can apply. Here's a phone number, simple enough. Or because you're a U.S. band, you're going to pay 15% in taxes anyway. So you claim this as money paid in Canada, you'll get the whole tax sheet, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. And so just trying to be knowledgeable and, and again, learn from those mistakes, but at least, try to make it easier on everybody when they got to deal with shitty situation. Well, especially when bands don't know. Cause like you said, yeah. it's I like you wouldn't have any idea. And all of a sudden it's 15% less than you're expecting. And that could be, you know, probably not the difference between getting from here to Regina or not, but it, it's, it's a tank of gas. Though, it definitely. Right? Like, when you're that smaller band. And the other great thing was like, at least it's always the smaller bands. Like say if it was like, hate breed and you know whatever smaller bands i could always go to the hate breed tour manager and be like hey man could you just like let them know and they'd be like yeah withholding tax sucks but it's a thing mm -hmm. it's not the promoter trying to screw you because that's the other thing the sadly growing into it from like a diy aspect into where you're part of a business there's such a terrible stigma about promoters. Everybody thinks the promoter's trying to screw them. Yeah. And you're just trying to be as flat out honest as you can be and helpful. Mm. So yeah, sadly that stigma is always there and everybody thinks you're just trying to screw them. And so working with union, you worked there till about 2016. Mm -hmm. um, again, thanks to LinkedIn for uh, telling me all this information. Um, what was your role at the, cause you were working at small man and the union. So you're kind of like kind of doubling up like yeah so or working it, hand but, in hand i guess yeah it got a, there came a, a sad point i always call small man the heyday because i loved working there and working with jason and rob but there came a point where uh small man decided to close mm -hmm. you know jason had gotten a job like an arm's length government funding job with mfm and they both decided that they wouldn't continue the label on so, you know, I had just graduated college and started working for Small Man maybe a year before that, like full-time, and doing the shows whenever I could with them as part of my gig with Small Man. But then when it came to a halt, Jason and Rob sort of you know, had a little meeting and they were like, well, I don't want to do the shows. Do you still want to do shows? And Jason was like, I can't do shows. I got a gig. Like, Ruben, do you just want to do shows all the time? And as much as I love doing shows, it's like a freelance gig, right? Mm -hmm. So one month there might be five shows, but another month there might be one and that didn't pay the bills. Yeah. So I did take on the role and then that's when I moved on to Manitoba Music 
Uh, I got a job as like a program coordinator there, which was essentially distributing grants through one of their programs called Market Access. Okay. So for bands who were sort of trying to get to showcases like North by Northeast or South by Southwest, CMW or stuff overseas, there was a program they could apply to. So my job was like to administer the grants, hold the juries, and then have the uh, distribution of funds. And then the final reporting, just going through the numbers, making sure they spent and did what they said they were going to do, and then giving them final payments. So they were nice enough to take me on. And then they were also nice enough to let me keep doing shows on the side. So, you know, there'd be like a Tuesday or a Thursday where I wouldn't be in the office because I was across the street at the Bird or the Garrick doing a concert. And so when when you kind of make that leap, or not leap, but when you when small man kind of folds and decides they're no more um what what was your role at at the union were you just like a promoter rep yeah so i was a promoter rep production manager union kept growing so mm-hmm. that's the uh, the thing with them was every like they went into toronto and they started an office there so they started doing you know like 200 300 shows a year in toronto all in all, I think the company did around 800 and 900 shows a year. In Winnipeg, we would usually do around 90 to 100. So it was pretty busy, but again, it was nice to have a side gig at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously like 90 to 100 split over a year isn't, you know, it's not, you could have, you know, 10 shows a month and then maybe two, if yeah. not, in like in the in the slower times, like December and January generally or, are not, and june july yeah. like it's always those may or march to may and then september to november is when you get slammed but it's thin in december and it's thin in the summers and those are always the tough times right and so, so when when mm-hmm. when people because like i've got a pretty good working idea of you know what production managers and um promoter reps do but for anybody listening like what exactly like take me through a day um when you're working with the union what kind of you you'd had to do before like even before the show starts so the big thing is doing the advance right mm-hmm. so a band or a tour reaches out to you says hey see winnipeg's on part of the routing here i'm davy jones here's our information here's our writer take a look at it and let us know what you can do and so you'd read the rider over and you'd be like okay like they want so many lights or they want such and such sound. And and that's always the tricky thing with a rider. Half the time, you're not even getting the current one. The agent has sent you something that got approved six years ago. Mm-hmm. It says they're touring with a trailer, but this time they're actually coming with a semi truck. <laughs> so it's, you always have to like clarify those details and go over a bunch of stuff. Another role that I had with the union was actually working in immigration. Oh, okay. So back in the day, you used to have to apply for, work permits to get bands from the US into Canada. Uh, So my role was always, my role was a bit slimmer because that wasn't around too much longer once I started the gig, but you did have to send over a manifest of all the crew, all the bands, all their passport numbers, because being in Winnipeg, that's the make or break, right? You show up to the border, which is like an hour away from here and nothing sucks more than when they're like, nope, you got nothing in order. You're not allowed to cross. Did you ever have a band that happened to? Oh, the one of the worst ones. I had two where it was terrible. One was the used at the Garrick. 
for some reason someone couldn't in the band couldn't get over and so it's you're waiting for them to show up you're waiting for them to show up jeez but then at noon because again it's an hour away from the show right so if your loading's at noon they should be there by noon but uh at noon they called me and said like hey we got to the border and got the night show shows canceled tonight we're actually canceling our whole canadian run or something and you're just like okay that's terrible yeah but one of the worst times was Streetlight Manifesto at the West End. Really? So Streetlight shows up in their bus to the border, right? I've sent in all the paperwork. Uh, they're they're a clean band. I think like the band Straight Edge, and um, but there was something about it where the agent just wouldn't let them cross. And if an agent denies you, another one can't approve you. Like that agent has to approve mm-hmm. you to come over. And so Mike Park, who runs Asian Man Records, mm-hmm. was opening on that show, I think with like Jeff Rosenstock or something. And so they show up in like a car and they're like, oh, where's the band? And I'm like, oh, they're still at the border. And Streetlight was sold out. Like it was sold out the day it went on sale. We didn't move it to a bigger venue or anything. So it was at the West End, like 400 kids coming. And so I'm on the phone with the tour manager constantly. And he keeps saying like, oh, yeah, you know what? I, we're just getting everything cleared up. We should be there in an hour. He's like, okay, well, we'll keep it going, you know? So we sound check Mike and Jeff and get things going. And then it's like six o'clock oh. and doors are at seven. And you're like, hey, and they're like, you know what? Just stall. We'll be there by like eight. We'll just throw our stuff up on stage and go. We're quick. We'll be good. And you're like, are you sure? Like, they're like, yeah, everything's getting, like, I'm looking at the guy. He's giving me a thumbs up right now, blah, blah, blah. And we go. <laughs> And let everybody into the room, right? So you got 400 kids buying their beers, uh, you know, Mike Parks hanging out, chatting with people in the lobby. And then, you know, eight o'clock comes and I was just like, where are you guys? And they're like, yeah, and we're not getting through. <laughs> like, we're stuck here. I don't know why, yada, yada, you know? And so Mike and Jeff were like, well, what do you want to do, man? And I was like, well, we opened doors already, but we're going to have to cancel the show. They're like, oh, that sucks. Like, we'd really like to play. And it's like, well, you guys can play. And there's like, we'll only play if you refund everybody's money, though. And it's like, yeah, everybody's getting a refund. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those moments, like being a promoter rep, half the time, everything you do is backstage, right? Yeah. You don't have to, like, you deal with people one-on-one, like, if there's an issue. Yeah. But that was, like, the moment where you have to go out on oh. stage to the mic and just be like, hey, everybody uh the band's stuck at the border and won't be able to make a show everybody's gonna get a refund but sorry you can't see them tonight and mike park and jeff said they'd love to come up and they're gonna do a bunch of streetlight manifesto songs that they know for you guys and they're gonna call up some fans on stage to sing along so have a good time grab a beer this one's on us you get your money back Mm -hmm. so and it was it was really fun like they did a great job you know having a party with the crowd like crowd singing a song without the band there and so that happens i think by the end of the night it was like 10 o'clock and we had packed everything up and i drive home get home settle in and 11 o'clock the tour manager calls me he's like yeah just got through the border oh geez yeah oh that's i mean that's really great that mike and jeff played because i mean obviously they're going to because you know the doors are open. The kids are in the building. Everyone's yeah. getting their money back already. So it's like they didn't drive all the way f- for nothing. And also I'm very jealous. I love Mike Park. Oh yeah. He's Asian man records along with kind of like lookout records is probably one of my favorite 
like couple favorite record labels just because they just put out good music. Yeah, or, consistently, right? Yeah, like, or Lookout did, but and they found, always found like great bands that you'd get into. I just um I just had uh one of the Asian man bands, the the Moore Family Band on. <clears throat> oh really? And they're it's they're very like Weezer-esque. It's uh two brothers and a sister and they basically just started um through because COVID hit, so they got nothing to do and everyone came back home and they're like, Hey, let's let's start a band because um, Randy's other band was on Asian Man, and Mike was like, "Yeah, I'll release this. Sure, that'd be great." And yeah, it's really Weezer, Weezer the Queers, kind of like that early '90s punk rock sound. Oh, awesome. Um, oh yeah. So yeah, back to your your kind of the day, like advance the band. All right. So you advance all the details, and then you do the immigration stuff. So that's like a few weeks before the show even happens, mm-hmm. right? Then a few days before the show happens, you sort of, you know, well, along with the band, you got to advance all the details with the venue. You got to let the venue know what's going on. You got to hire staff. So you need a box office person, maybe a runner to go grab stuff all day. You need to go through the production details like, hey, I need an LD. I might have to bring in extra production. This is what they want to do. And as you get bigger and bigger, there's always more responsibilities like, hey, I'm going to need a rigger to come in because they want to hang this and this and this in the air. So, you know, your labor bill from like a small club is like 500 bucks. But once you start doing the bigger rooms, it's anywhere from 5,000 to 15,000 or 20,000, depending on how many hands, how many trucks, how many, mm. um, all the rentals that you have to do. So again, it was something where it was, there was always a learning curve, right? And it was nice to start with union and do those small gigs. And again, even having been in a band myself, knowing you know, what to expect at a show, what it's like to deal with the crowd coming in, hiring security, going over details with them. And then it's show day, right? So you do your load in anywhere from like 7 a.m. or noon, depending on how dramatic the band is and, you know, how much time they need to set up their stuff. I mean, I only say that because there are so many times at the Garrick where you load in a band at 9 a.m., and then you're done at noon and there's nothing to do till seven o'clock. Yeah. Meanwhile, you have to pay people all day, right? So to, to your, hang out. your end of day bill costs you 800 bucks more than it should have. And again, that's stuff that you have to go over with the artists. Like, sadly, I don't know if there's a reputation, of, but I would, I, you know, when you're doing shows and especially with the union, who is a smaller company, like every dollar mattered. Mm-hmm. And so you sort of had to say like, oh, that's not in the budget or you know, especially if you're doing a 700 person show that's only sold 200 tickets, it's like, well, can't do load in at 9am. So you'd always, there were always hurdles like that to jump over and, and, you know, you, you're trying your best to like make them happy and make the venue happy, but it's all about, you know, financial management at that point. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, you do doors, you know, let all the kids in, everybody comes for the show, gets ready. Uh, the show goes on. Usually at that time, I'm in the back counting numbers and putting them into spreadsheets and filling out sheets with business numbers and business names and writing checks and paying the venue and all the staff for the day. So then you, you know, end of show, that's the thing, like with bigger shows, there's tour managers, there's production managers, right? So yeah. when a band's on stage, the tour manager says, hey, you want to settle? And you're settling at 8 p.m. But when you're doing a show at the Albert or the West End or the Pyramid, especially where the band's not going on until two and 
the tour manager's the drummer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you're not you're not getting out till yeah. three. Uh, so those make for the longest nights. But again, everything gets a little busier. Like the more production aspect you have and the harder that is, the end of day stuff becomes a little easier, right? You're writing a check instead of trying to pull 5,000 US out of a bank and mm -hmm. trying to find small bills because you don't know if they have a withholding waiver or not. So just things like that. Can you think of one of, like, you obviously worked at the union for, what is it, nine years? Yeah, I think yeah, I did. I, mean, I think I did my right my my math there correctly. Um, from 2007 till you know 2016, mm -hmm. is there one show that really? Because I mean, everyone's got them. Is there one show that really sticks out in your mind that was like, kind of like not holy crap, they're here. It's this is amazing, but you know, something that you you you're a huge fan of and you finally got to see that band in Winnipeg and you're doing the show. I mean, so much of what we do ruins ideas of what you have of bands, right? Mm. Like you meet the wrong band that you love, but they're terrible people. Yeah. And it just, it makes you want to throw out the CD, get rid of the shirt, you know, but the bands that are awesome and awesome people you remember forever. Mm -hmm. Like, and that to me was like Deftones. Like I love Deftones. Like white pony was a great album. And I think they're a great band. But when they came, I was actually just a runner. And somebody was like, hey, do you mind taking Chino around town all day and, <laughs> you know, just doing whatever he wants to do? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, That's what the gig is, right? Yep. So you take Chino and you're like, hey, man, what do you want to do? And he's like, uh, I got to go buy some underwear. I got to get this. And you're like, hey, you take him to the mall. He buys this stuff. It's like, what do you want to do now? And he's like, uh, you got like a skate shop or a skate park around here? And I was like, yeah, I took him to skate when I was at the Forks. So you go in and he's just like, yeah, I was just hoping to buy like a skateboard because we just started this tour and I don't have one on tour yet. And they were like, are you the guy from Deftones? And he's just like, yeah. <laughs> like, awesome, would you sign some stuff? And he was just like, yeah, man. So he signs a bunch of stuff and uh, he picks up a skateboard. And I think he bought like two decks. He bought a skateboard to complete and another one. And then we went and skated at the Forks. So he's skating, just hanging out and blah, blah, blah. And kids keep coming up to him. And he's like, yeah, man, I'll sign that. And he's got a Sharpie with him, just do all this stuff. And then he just gave away the skateboard, gave away the deck. Nice. And he was just like, ah, I guess I'll have to go to a skate shop in Saskatoon tomorrow. Or <laughs> and probably do the same thing all over yeah, again. Yeah, it's like, like, you don't have to do that. Like, you meet so many artists who are like, don't look at me in the eyes. Mm -hmm. But like, to be somebody who wants to go out there and connect with people and the culture that they're a part of that's always a huge thing right so mm -hmm. stuff like that or social d is one of my favorites because mike ness is just a wonderful person and he's got this crazy hobby of antiquing oh nice oh yeah and every time i do a show there's always people who are like hey man if if you need anything that day let me know so i put j-rod on who i know was on the podcast a little yeah. bit of a while uh, and I was like, hey, J-Rod, do you want to run for Mike Ness? And oh, she's geez. like, yeah. So she took him antiquing. She knows all the antique yeah, shops. Yeah, of course she town, does. Right? So, and they're just having a great time because they just both have that same, like, uh -huh. you know, rock and roll attitude. And it's just, it's fun when you see somebody be a good person all day and or just are a natural per good person and you meet them like that. Mm -hmm. So That's amazing. Like I, I wish I could have been along with, uh, with Mike and J-Rod because that would have been that would have been like nonstop 
talking and just like oh yeah like the laughs alone right oh, and i love and her he laugh wants to go eat vegan food so you take him to mondragon and he's like impressed like he's just like man this food's delicious come here next time and and then it's funny like if you ever see the social d show right it's got like such a vintage mm-hmm. setup like there's license plates and everything and that's stuff that he picks up city to city that's awesome so he like throws it on stage and then throws into the semi he has nice um and so something i mean that i don't know really anything about while you're working at manitoba music dealing with grants and stuff um like how does a band go about getting a grant and like what are the the kind of steps for that and getting even getting approved for a grant i mean it's everything from like where you are in your career and baby bands and sort of like what are what are you trying to accomplish as a band Mm -hmm. you know you don't want to be mean but it's like if this is a weekend warrior thing you know maybe don't waste anybody's time but if you want to if you're looking for an agent because you want to tour or you're looking for a label because you tour and would be able to go support an album if somebody released it well then here's a leg up on going to places and meeting with people because that's what the organization is right it's an industry association so they sort of try to connect bands with appropriate um avenues of like you know people who could potentially help those bands Mm -hmm. and that's great like you know working there from 2010 to 2016 you you know that was like the era of royal canoe and you know right before i left begonia was starting to do stuff and uh you also have greg mcpherson who would go do some things sometimes or you know scott nolan or again so much great winnipeg talent and Mm -hmm. that's what's so fulfilling about that gig was you were helping bands who were like giving it their shot or artists giving it their shot and like okay well if you need to get the north by northeast here's the marketing plan you can write up and here's what you should be trying to do while you're out there and here's some contacts and yada 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 and then we you know they i wouldn't have anything to do with them getting approved it really you could tell them what to put on paper. Mm. And then when you review that with the jury of like three or four people, they're the ones that decide like, maybe it's too soon or maybe this band's played enough of these showcases. They don't need to anymore. Um, But they're the ones who go into the room and say what they could or couldn't get. But again, it was like a very fulfilling job because then at the end of the day, I was giving more yeses than nos all the time because that's what the organization's for. And you were putting money in the pockets of people who needed it. Like, yeah, you're giving me 1500 bucks. That only covers the plane tickets, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so it was bands who were dedicating themselves to their craft and, you know, investing in themselves and you'd see them go out and, and try to build stuff. And yeah, it was nice. That's one, that's one of the big things I noticed. I mean, even before I moved here, I I'd always come up for a few shows here and there whenever I could. And the first time I came to Winnipeg, I was like, like it, it was one of the first places I went that it actually felt like home. And I'm like, this, this, this is great. And the folks I met, I'm still friends with all of them to this day. They're just a great bunch of people. And then when I moved up here, then I really got kind of, I guess my hands dirty and into the scene. And then that's when you really realize, cause everyone's first, whenever you say, yeah, you're from Winnipeg, they're like, oh, they, aren't you scared of getting stabbed or whatever? And I'm like, you know what? If you're an asshole, it's probably going to happen anyways, no matter where you are. But Winnipeg's so great. And like the the music scene 
just like anywhere, ebbs and flows um, with what's quote unquote cool and not. But there's always something going on. There's always a genre. There's always a scene for everyone. Um, and a lot of that really overlaps. Like, let's say you're into hardcore. That hardcore kid you're probably going to see at a hip hop show or you might see at, God forbid, an EDM show. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things that I loved because like and folks like Manitoba Music seem to really foster a lot of great bands and push it out there. Yeah. And, you know, the sense of community in Winnipeg seems like second to none. You know, the the fact that you'll go see your favorite bands and then next thing you know, you're chatting with the bartender and it's like, oh, hey, you play drums in that band. Mm -hmm. or Oh, yeah, you sing in that band and everything from, you know, bartending to restaurants to venues and things of that nature. You just keep seeing the same people who have sort of made careers and have really made Winnipeg home or and some of them have put Winnipeg on the map and you got to thank them for that. Right. Like, you know, all the credit to propaganda, like think of how many skate punk shows do so well here because they really harness that whole um community of like their fan base here and, and being the band that made it out onto a, a well-known record label but mm -hmm. then if you play you know if any fat band plays winnipeg it's because there's so many fans of that genre because the local band made it yeah versus you don't see it as much in other smaller towns right mm -hmm. but, and i mean like comeback kid granted only one of the guys is still here, but they're, I mean, they're a Winnipeg band. Yeah. And, you know, like. I was just talking to, uh, well, you know, Flo. Yeah. I was just talking to him and he had said that when he first moved here, his girlfriend was like, yeah, this is my friend. And then Andrew came out and Flo was just like, he's like, I couldn't, I, I, how, how do I, you're, you're my favorite band. Like, how do I talk to you? <laughs> like, this is, this is crazy. And I mean, that, yeah, we, we've got so many great and still like hardworking bands that are still out there when you can be out there just slugging away at it. And that's why, you know, I was so thankful of Small Men at the time too, because they, you know, busted their ass in trying to create a Canadian punk scene and being a label, a reputable label in Canada. And then, you know, working with Comeback Kid and Propagandy there, as well as Monine and and it really just showed like the hard work that they put in and making sure that there was a place, you know, a release for all these great bands at the time. One well, that that's why small man was one of my favorite labels because like, I'm just on the, the website's still up. Anybody interested smallmanrecords.com. They still have it live. It's still going. Um, but it's not like necessarily just like a punk label. It, it's definitely started out that way with like, um, bands like, well, Moose Jaw's own Layaway Plan still yeah, have that, right. still have that CD. Um, and you know, like Guy Smiley, but then you have bands like Choke that aren't like your typical punk rock bands. Yeah, um, and then you had like Sylvie, yep, you know, who was more indie rock than anything else. And you had uh, Our Mercury, which I love was that band. And that record from below is still one of my favorite mm -hmm. releases. I listened to night of the year, like one of the last tracks on that, at least a few times a month. Um, but yeah. And, and then you had stuff like grave maker, right. Where yeah, they were also still supporting hardcore and punk and, and everything from like six city too, right. Like the local guys who needed that help with uh, having a label like trust kill in the U S 
because that was the other thing about small man that it wasn't just about you know releasing there was the whole management aspect that jason worked on and you know being the guy who was brokering deals for propaganda and comeback kid and six city and making sure that you know these bands were getting their fair shake at at what they could do in the u.s right like all those bands have toured globally in one way or another mm -hmm. and i'm just looking again carpenter i love oh, that yeah. band i love yeah. carpenter they're so good i was just Dan listening is such a great songwriter and you know that law of the land record is uh it's like bar none it's so good i still have my uh my t-shirt of jesus playing the cross guitar so good yeah it's so good <laughs> I have mine somewhere here too. I'll it's to I, I'm I'm th there's definitely been a few and again I collect everything like it's so stupid but like I've got I've seen old shirts on other people that I got rid of and I'm like man I should have kept that shirt even even though it's probably not yeah. gonna fit and anymore. I mean, and how could we forget the reason, right? Like yeah, small man just took them out right from under my my grasp. I, they were I had such big plans for them. <laughs> actually when they told me i'm like that is amazing because like i never had any delusions as to what lonely tree records would ever be as far as i was concerned it was like it was the farm team for a bigger label that's all i ever wanted it to be right i knew it was never going to be epitaph fat records nor i mean it would have been wonderful if that would have happened but no i was i was happy doing my little thing and not really knowing what i'm doing at all and so eventually union comes to an end like yeah so like what the company itself that, actually ceased to exist or well it, did it didn't cease to exist it got bought out yes so that was one of the strange things where you know you're finally what is this 2015 2016 mm -hmm. and i'm working at manitoba music and i'm doing shows and everything's going just you know hunky-dory and then it's that moment where somebody it's sort of like the small man thing. Like when I was working at small man and for like a year and some, I'm like, Oh, I love this place. I love what I do. I love working with these people. And it's like, and we're going to close. Mm -hmm. like, oh, fuck. So then you figure it out again. Okay. I'm doing shows. I'm working at Manitoba music. And then people kept coming by my desk at Manitoba music one day. And they're like, Hey man, her union got bought out by live nation. Huh. They're like, huh? And then you see like, the emails come in and oh. you know sadly they had to let staff go mm. only so many people have been transferred over in this deal what does this mean for me because i'm a rep for union but other production companies had their own reps right mm. so live nation had a couple people they would use I, I did a few live nation shows before that and as well like there's these things called co-promotions where both union and live nation or union and a different promoter would be on it so you would sort of work in tandem together on these things and one of you would take the show and so on. But there's that weird moment where it's like, okay, now I have a house, now I have a kid and half of my job is gone. Mm -hmm. So what am I going to do? So that's when, you know, you had those talks with union and there's still going to be some shows under their umbrella, but it's also covered by live nation. So you start doing these shows and, you know, they were impressed enough being like, hey, man, you work hard. You you definitely have a handle of the finances and and how to, you know, keep budgets close on tough ones and how to, you know, maximize it when it's a good one. And they're like, do you want to do more shows? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So Live Nation started giving me more concerts at that time. But then 
it just became like a bit of that seven year itch at Manitoba Music where, you know, I was sitting there and, and as fulfilling as it is, there wasn't much movement, mm. you know, I wasn't ready to let go of shows and try to dedicate myself to something else. I still wanted to focus on doing shows. And then that's when the opportunity opened up at True North to be a buyer for the Burton Cummings Theater. Um, you know, doing production and promoter repping, I was used to, but I wasn't really used to buying as much. Mm -hmm. I had done my own shows every now and then, and I worked on Juno Fest, which is essentially like a festival of showcases for bands when the Junos were in town in 2014. Mm -hmm. So we put on, I think it was like a hundred and or 105 bands over two days at 15 venues. And then, uh, that went well, like it was a successful in itself. And, and then I enjoyed doing that aspect. And again, it was sort of like, yeah, the buying aspect isn't necessarily, it's not just me buying shows at the bird, it's managing the calendar. Mm -hmm. So working with those buyers from Live Nation and, you know, Harvey still works at Live Nation. And, you know, we talk all the time about what show he plans on bringing and, you know, giving him a budget and what the finances look like depending on the rider so that he can make the offers better. And then, so I buy about 20 shows a year and then we do about 60 to 70 in rentals. So that's what the gig is now. It's, you know, both still promoter repping a little bit, like making sure that, you know, artists and promoters have all the answers, right? Instead of me sending all the details to the venue, I'm the guy who receives the details mm -hmm. and has to sort of try to put it all together for them. And <clears throat> so you move up to buying shows. And again, for folks that don't know, what's involved in like in, in buying a show? Like what's the kind of the legwork that goes into like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a random band like, I mean, it's everything. It's it's the biggest is the negotiations, right? And and you really hope that people. It's a little behind the curtain that people don't understand what a ticket price is. Mm -hmm. Like people look at a concert ticket and they're like seventy bucks. Like I'm not paying seventy bucks to see that band. It's like, well, how? Here's how it breaks down. This band wants so and so dollars to play Winnipeg. And so unless, and they're coming with a semi and they're coming with this production. So here's all my expenses. So that, you know, that 10 grand that they want, plus these, or not 10 grand, but say 30 grand that they want, mm. plus these expenses means that I'm only going to sell at best a thousand tickets for this band. That means my ticket has to be 6950 mm -hmm. if I want to break even at a thousand tickets. And so it's always this thing of like, people don't necessarily think of how much goes into, you know, why their ticket price is what it is. Mm -hmm. And you're still trying to make it reasonable too. Cause you can't, you can't charge 70 bucks for, um, you know, for strung out. Yeah. You can't charge, uh, you know, a hundred bucks for no effects. Yeah. Cause so, yeah. Cause it won't, n no one will pay that because exactly, they'll be like, right? eh, no. So it's like the realization of what you can do. And again, like everybody wants to be paid in US dollars when they're mm -hmm. coming from the States. Well, that's an extra 35 cents for every buck, you know, coming out of our pockets. So it's that balance and really trying to say like, okay, well, instead of 30, I could pay you 20 and this is what the ticket price is and this is how it breaks down. And here's how much I got to spend on marketing and everything else. And do you, so, 
mm-hmm. was gonna say do you talk to i mean other reps and other folks across the country knowing kind of what they're paying or do you just go on i mean enough bands like i'm just gonna throw this out here like alice cooper alice cooper has been to winnipeg a lot which is mm-hmm. phenomenal so it's like you know what he did last time he'll probably do the same time same thing this time i mean obviously as time goes on things get more expensive gas you know crew whatever but do you already roughly know kind of you know the numbers well yeah so we do talk like there's a bunch of uh, groups that we're a part of that have like weekly calls and that's what differentiates us from the touring promoters right like a live nation or a Mm -hmm. union at the time who are going to buy multiple dates right so they're sort of balancing their books based on like, well, Vancouver is going to do a little bit bigger than Edmonton. So I'll pay them more in Vancouver and a little less in Edmonton, but they're still getting 30 a night because they're getting 40 here and 20 there. Mm -hmm. They're getting their nut. And so that's the hard thing about Winnipeg is when you're doing a one-off show, you're sort of saying like, how can I make this appealing enough to come up? Because that's, that's really the hard thing is that, you know, we have the exchange rate against us. We have, you know, a border against us. Mm-hmm. How am I convincing somebody to play Winnipeg after Minneapolis instead of Montana? Mm-hmm. Right? Because that's the route. Like you go Minneapolis, Montana, Edmonton, Calgary, and you're doing your West Coast without hitting Saskatchewan or Winnipeg. Yeah. And so you have to make it appealable to these bands. And, you know, not everybody wants to play Winnipeg. So many bands go out there with, I'm going to do so many dates. I'm going on tour for five weeks. Mm -hmm. That's my North American tour. Well, you have to try your hardest to to play ball and be where they want you to be financially to be a part of that. Otherwise they'll just do, you know, they'll go East. They'll go Milwaukee, Chicago, Detroit, Toronto, instead of coming up. And Winnipeg's such a secluded place too. Like Mm -hmm. as much as we're only an hour from the border, we're eight hours from the next town in Ontario and nobody's even playing Thunder Bay really. No. And we're, you know, five hours from Regina and Regina's what a fifth of our size. Mm-hmm. So to, you know, they're not definitely not going to get the same kind of money in those markets. Yeah. Can, can you think of one of those bands that you tried so, so hard to get here and you thought it was going to happen and then it just kind of, they just routed somewhere else. Um, that's a tough question. Like usually you have an inkling of when they would come up to Winnipeg, you know, but it's tough, like working with folk fest and getting the national last year. Right. That was a great example of like a band who had such a big demand in the city. And we went over all the specs and said, here's what the show looks like at the Burt. And then they were in and he sold out the show in a day. And it's like, yeah, like, we did it. Great job. Like, this is going to be fantastic. Yeah. And then COVID hits and you're like, okay, we got to, are we going to reschedule the show? And then the agent just sort of looks at you and says, like, <laughs> you guys sold out in a day. Like, we're not going to play your room. We're going to play the bigger room because we'll sell more tickets now. Mm. And it's just like crushing defeat of like a band that, you know, everybody had really put a lot of energy and a lot of work into getting and making it make sense, like everything lined up because they were going to do the Folk Fest in Calgary and this was going to be a one-off play before that. Mm-hmm. And then it all just crumbles. And and not only that, but it was it's defeating because like it's just a flat out like, no, they're they're too big for you now. Yeah. And that and even that's the hard part with bands, right? Is that 
so many of them do like they just grow out of your scale yeah you know like i would love to get a dropkick murphy's rancid show but Mm -hmm. it's like it's that tough place where we're 1700 seats and the next bump up to the arena would be 3500 seats Mm -hmm. but they're right in like the 2500 yeah right you you don't ever want to put a band in you know a room that's too big because then that's horrible because then yeah. it's like empty and like I've been to I've been shows where there's like 15 people in a 400 cap room and it's like oh this maybe should have been at the handsome daughter or something yeah. but I mean at the theater we are able to disguise that a lot right like mm-hmm. we're able to make it work that you can do 500 people on the floor and then nobody's really looking into the first and second balcony. They're just looking at the floor. Yeah. It's a bit tougher for the band on stage if they don't understand where they are in their career mm-hmm. because you're looking at a half empty room, but the floor is packed, but that's sort of what we were gauging for the show. Yeah. Or even like if you pack the floor in the first balcony, nobody can see into the second balcony while the lights are on anyway. Yeah. I'm, I mean, and I'm sure most bands, hopefully at that either if it's early in their career or later, I think they should have a pretty good gauge on to, you know, where they're at unless they're, ah, really, so. unless they're really full of themselves, which <laughs> I, I mean, musicians with egos, that doesn't happen. Like that's always, that is one of the hardest things is when you would settle a show, especially like smaller ones and like the band, the tour managers in the band themselves. And when you're settling, they're like, so how do we do tonight? And it's like, 150 people in a <laughs> 700 person room they'd be like oh why is that and they're just like you know and and again it's sort of this balance of being a promoter of like they just think you didn't do your job mm-hmm. correctly and they're like, like did you even tell anybody this show was happening it's like well we spent two thousand dollars on marketing for the show and and they're like did you really and it's like yeah here's the receipts <laughs> yeah it's just you 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 just don't have the draw and I'm, I'm sorry we tried and failed and no better for next time yeah like i remember one of the hardest ones was we did drive by truckers and they're a great band right mm-hmm. like you know jason isbell was in the band at the time and for some reason i don't know why but somebody bought the show for canada day at the garrick so you're working <laughs> a day where there's free music on the sunniest day of the year of yep. a long weekend and there's a hundred people in the room to a band that's been playing like a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand people a night. And they're just like, what happened? It's like your agent should have known better. Yeah. Like a hundred percent. Right. This isn't just our fault. It's like, there's a lot of people involved here. Like somebody was pushing saying like, if you want drive through truckers next time, you better or drive by truckers next time. Mm. You better pick this one up. And it's just like, this one is so painful for everyone. And so, I mean, you've given a lot of insight into kind of like pulled back the curtain a little bit and, you know, showed kind of what happens behind the scenes, especially on a bigger show. And like something that I've come to learn from talking to a few, even like tour manager folks and just behind the scenes people is, I mean, it's a lot of just accounting is what it it's. It's like you're, you're, you're basically, you, you are an accountant. So it's like, You've got to make sure all the the ones and the zeros and everything balances out at the end of the day. What advice would you give to someone that's like really loves to do, really loves music? I mean, and as you said before, you don't get to see that much of it because you're off dealing with putting out fires or just dealing with tour folks. 
but what would you give, what would you tell someone if they wanted to get into kind of the production side of things? Uh, you know, for me, again, it goes back to the interning and sort of always, always making yourself available to like help wherever you can and want to learn, right? There's so many people and you meet them along the way who sort of say like, yeah, man, I'd love to do that at a show. And then you're like, yeah, man, come on down 9am. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's when the day starts. And, and, you know, it's tough in this industry, because it's easy to get starstruck, or, you know, try to be involved or, you know, thinking that when you're dealing with these bigger bands that they're there to hang out with you and stuff. And it's such a misconception. It's like, you know, having worked, I don't even know, maybe 500 shows at this point, the best interaction you have is just saying like, Oh, Hey, how's it going? Like, yep. that's the end of it. You have to deal with the tour managers and the production managers and making sure that they're doing their job so they can make the band happy. Mm -hmm. Right. And when they can't make the band happy, that means the band's going to shit on them. And then it's, goes downhill yeah can can you think of a time actually this leads in perfectly can you think of a time that you ever actually got starstruck meeting a band ah uh, that's a that's a good one uh i've only uh, i've only yeah. I've, while you're thinking i've only had one and this was before um i came on as the the full-time true north photographer and this whole time um when when dan was doing it and he knew how big of a Garth Brooks fan I was. Right. And so I was like, he's like, yeah, do you want to shoot? They're doing like a meet and greet kind of thing. And he's like, do you want to shoot that for me? And I was just like, yes, obviously I do. And I have never been so nervous for any shoot in my life, even though it's a quick, like, it's a super easy shoot. It's a quick kind of like grip and grin, like present people with stuff. I knew it was going to be easy, but I got into the room and I like looked around and I'm like, okay, it's, you know, a 15 foot white ceiling. Okay. That's good. It's only this wide. I'm like, oh, okay, I hope my lens is wide enough to get whatever. And then he comes in and I was like, just blown away. And going back to what you said before, just how nice he was. Cause he even came up to me and I've, at this point I'd done a few meet and greets. I'm just another photographer in the room. I'm basically nobody but just another face in the room taking photos. And he just comes up to me and he's like, Hey, I'm Garth. What's your name? And I was just like, you don't need to, I'm Dwayne. Like <laughs> he was so nice. I have two stories, I guess. One, I mean, again, it's, it's this weird thing of like, you know, who you put on a pedestal mm -hmm. isn't necessarily the most famous person in the world, but it's somebody you admire. Yeah. So I was working at a festival in Edmonton and hanging out and catering. So we had like an outdoor catering tent. And I think it was, was Rise Against on stage? Somebody was on stage. And again, the festival's got like 10,000 people. It's busy backstage. For some reason, the catering tent was dead. So I go into catering and there's a tray of like chocolate chip cookies. And I take the last two chocolate chip cookies. And as I'm walking out, this like lady and her son come in. And their son just goes, he's like, I just want to grab a cookie, mom. And he goes, oh, they're out of cookies. And I'm like, you know, feeling like terrible, like <laughs> give the kid the cookies, right? Yeah. So I just like turn around and it's like, hey, man, here's two cookies. I th they're yours. No problem. And then in comes uh, Milo from The Descendants. Oh. And the kid runs up and he's like, dad, dad, this guy gave me his cookies. 
He's like, oh, really? And he's like, what's your name? And I was like, Ruben. And he's just like, Ruben's the best, man. <laughs> and like the kid was like, oh, thank you so much. And again, it's just those nice moments, right? Mm-hmm. And then my other favorite one was, I'm a big comedy geek. Mm-hmm. And so we were doing John Mulaney at the uh, at the Burt. It was his uh, first time playing the theater. And he was doing two shows that day, one at six and one at nine. And so at the Burt, you have your stage, stage right is where everybody comes in and there's a little like waiting area in the back. And John Mulaney, you know, he comes down and I'm just watching the TV and I just, you know, give him the, hi, thanks for playing Winnipeg, you know, really excited for the show. And he just looks at me and he's just like, is this place haunted? And I go, oh yeah, like totally haunted. Yeah. He's like, what kind, what kind of ghosts? And I was like, ah, you know, people have seen this couple ladies, you know, in dark dresses and stuff like that. Uh, and he goes, oh, okay, awesome. And he goes out on stage and he's like, hey, good evening, Winnipeg, blah, blah, blah. He's like, I love these old theaters. This place, oh, and I told him, this place was built back in 1907. And I asked the manager backstage, I was like, is this place haunted? And he goes, oh, yeah. And then he was like, I was like, what kind of ghosts are here? And he goes, a couple of ladies. And the crowd's laughing. And I just cried laughing as it makes, <laughs> you know, just fun of the conversation we had two seconds ago. What's, and actually that, you know, is, is, is a great point to bring up. You also like now you're dealing with not just bands, but you're dealing with comedians and other like kind of big productions like um, musicals and stuff like that. What's who's who's easier to deal with comedians or like bands as far as like even just like, yeah, just dealing with them because like. Uh, I, I know like shows with bands have a lot more kind of moving parts to it, but you know, comedians can be, eh, can be temperamental sometimes. It always depends. I'd, you know, I'd love to say bands, but there's so many more moving parts with bands, mm-hmm. even the smallest, easiest ones. It's easy for a hiccup to just derail a bunch of things, right? Like an amp blows or, you know, the drummer breaks a leg or whatever might happen. Those are all things that have happened in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, but with comedy, it's really like, all right, so doors are at seven. Great. I'll be there at 630. <laughs> Open the back door for me. Yeah. I'll come in. I'll do my thing. I'll sit in the back and then I'll come out and do my show. And that's almost every comedian, right? It's rare that any of them come early. The only thing there is you have to do like the airport pickups or mm-hmm. get them sorted, you know, and, but everybody's had a great attitude and we've been really lucky. Like we've had Bill Burr, John Mulaney, Joe Rogan's played the theater, Russell Brand, uh, you know, tons of the biggest comics in the world. And they're all so simple. There's never been a hiccup with any of them. And being a huge fan of comedy, is that something you brought to the Burt and like True North was you want to like get more of that into the Burt? Well, and it's also about having a good balance. Like you want to be a good partner, right? So we work a lot with Just for Laughs. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, Kevin Donnelly, my boss, he's had a great relationship with uh, Christine Melko Ross, who runs JFL. And so uh, her and Suzanne, who do all the bookings, they, you know, they make a point of calling us before they come out to every town. They're like, what do you think of this? How's this going to do? And then that's the other part of being a buyer is, you know, if somebody's doing something and they're reputable and they do things right, I'm standing aside. I'm not trying to compete with them for mm. a show. 
I'm happy to have them come and make it work. And again, sometimes you lose out because those shows end up in the bigger rooms or have to go somewhere else just due to the amount of money. Mm-hmm. But it's all about really building that relationship, you know, helping out with the expenses when a show tanks or helping out with the ability to be the person in town running those shows for them as well. And them knowing that artists are going to be taken care of when you do the gig. And I mean, before kind of COVID screeched everything to a halt, who who were some of the comedians you were like, who were some of your favorite comedians? And I mean, they don't need to be stratospheric style, like Jerry Seinfeld stuff, but I mean, I'm more interested in the up and coming ones. Cause, and mostly because they are usually to use a sports analogy. It's like, they're, they're like the, the farm team or the minor leagues that are still hungry and like working hard and like working every kind of room. Yeah, I mean, you know, everything from like, I remember doing Joe Rogan back in 2010, and he brought out this comic Tom Segura with him. And Tom was great, hilarious. He'd never really toured Canada. He was still doing like, uh, hilariously enough, he did rumors the next time he came. And there's a a famous story of him bombing terribly (laughs) at rumors where they like chanted for the opener to come back. And he left with such a bitter taste in his mouth about Winnipeg. And then he sells out two shows at the casino last year, Mm -hmm. you know, like 3000 tickets. So it's great to always watch bands and artists grow. Like that's the fun part of seeing people who are on the upswing with their careers. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, having worked city and color shows from the first time he played the Garrick to then doing shows at the bird and doing, you know, we did like two or three shows at the bird. And then he moved on to the arena because he was doing 5,000 people and Mm -hmm. same with Alexis, right? Like, you see these bands grow and so many of them have great crews, great people around. So, you know, it's going to be a great day when you end up seeing those people again. Do you ever take it? Um, not, not necessarily personally, but you, you mentioned the casino and they would, I guess, be your kind of your mirrored competition for, for the Burt. And even, even, I mean, some of the stuff at Bell MTS, do you ever try not to take it like to heart when like they, not necessarily steal a show, but get a show over you because I mean, you are in compete. You're, you're competing rooms and competing sizes. I mean, you, you want to have good relationships with everybody and Mm -hmm. Kelly at the casino is a great guy and and super nice. And it is not a personal thing at all. Right. Like I never blame him because all he's doing is putting in an offer and I'm putting in an offer and it's the artist or their team who chooses where to go. Mm -hmm. And And that's sort of like, you know, the casino is a tough example because, yeah, they're about the exact same size as us, but they have a bit more clout when it comes to the finances. Mm -hmm. So they can usually offer a little bit more or um, and then that's sort of where it's like, can you fault anybody for wanting to make more money? No, but, you know, sometimes and I, I think the stigma has gone a little bit, but what used to be your advantage is like, well, who really wants to play a casino? Mm-hmm. Like, do you want to be the band playing to, you know, you associate it with gray hairs and, and people playing slot machines and coming in to see a show like, you know, so there's some things that are like stick out where it's like, really, like, the casino has a good Charlotte show. Mm-hmm. And, but it happens, right. Yep. And, and they're also trying to expand because they want a different demographic in their room. But again, no, to no fault of them. And, you know, no fault of us, like, it just doesn't make sense for us to have that show at that dollar amount right yeah and so i mean i guess that brings us up to kind of now <clears throat> working with true north and 
it's something I don't like to talk about a lot on, on the podcast because there's nothing we can do about it, but you are, I mean, in the unique position of being employed and working with larger, um, arena style shows when COVID hit, I don't, again, hate talking about it because we're all just doing what we have to do to get through to hopefully there'll be some sense of normalcy in the future. Um, how do you kind of see shows kind of being happening again once things return to some semblance of normal? Yeah, like, you know, like we all say we wish we had a crystal ball to know how everything was going to end up. The biggest contrast is like, you know, you know, at some point you're going to start with like diminished capacity, like, uh, you know, like you're theater is going to do 500 people instead of 1700 people you know mm. the arena will have 1500 people or 3000 people in it before there's ever 15000 people back in there yeah and you know it's from in learning and working within those parameters and those hurdles that you're going to be able to see so everything you know still it's going to be a there's a learning curve to everything and it's going to be a steep climb back to where we were but I think, you know, as long as we get smarter about what's going on and, and take the care and take the precautions and don't rush things, like that's been the big thing. Mm. You know, um, the BERT was essentially able to start doing shows end of July, like August. They were okay with like 500 people back in the room. Mm. But we kept getting notes from our upper management just being like, no, we don't want to do anything. Like, we don't want to be the super spreader. Mm. And so you took, August slow you took September slow and we started figuring out like what shows could look like in October and going back saying like hey I've got these four bands lined up we'll do four weekends in November there'll be 500 people each it'll give us a chance to like you know get back to a bit of normalcy and I remember that week you know Mark Chipman who runs TNSE and the ownership he was just like no I don't want to take a chance I don't want to be a super spreader and then boom, that week, it was like where the numbers jumped up to 200. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, oh, okay, good thing we weren't even planning on moving ahead. Because that was the tough part. Like there's all these shows from January to March to May to June where if they've canceled, all the money that was spent on marketing, all the money that's like, that's out of pocket. Yeah, that's gone. That's, you know, and it's sort of just like, and again, those shows are just gone. Like nobody knows when those bands will be able to make it back. Mm-hmm. And, I I know there's a lots of shows people were looking forward to. There's a lots of shows I was looking forward to. And it's it's a shame that they're gone. But again, if we want some kind of normalcy, we just have to be careful and be cautious and, and make the right moves at the right time, right? And also, this this, I mean, it amazes me with folks like you that do this job because I'm pretty good at keeping secrets. I'm, I'm fairly, fairly decent at it. I get excited when other people get excited and especially when they tell me this band's coming through or whatever. How hard is it when you know, like something like when the rage against machine, cause like notwithstanding you're, you're the, the buyer for the bird, but you know what's going on over for the most part, I'm sure that's happening stuff at the, uh, the bell MTS and you know who you're in talks with. How hard is it to like, not tell people that you know would be super excited about this to not tell them. I actually look at it as a bit of a jinx. Mm-hmm. There's been a couple of times in my life where 
a huge show was going to happen and you know you like sort of whisper it to somebody's ear and they get excited and everything and then that show falls through Mm -hmm. like it's so quick that things can go away you know when you're like oh i think there's going to be a foo fighter show blah 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 blah. and then like the week later it's like no they canceled all of their canadian touring (laughs) so it's like and i hate i hate giving people like bad news or being yeah the like the untrusting one where it's like you told me this was gonna happen it's like hey man like <laughs> things change i shouldn't have told you to begin with and so i've sort of taken that aspect of like i just can't tell you because i don't know yeah i don't know until like papers are signed and contracts and shit's confirmed and and usually by the time that happens the show's gonna announce in three days anyway yeah and i mean even then like I don't know if you've had to sign like a, a waiver saying you're not allowed to, to say anything. No. Cause like I, I had to do that for one of the meet and greets that I shot. It, there was like a non-disclosure agreement, which ended up nothing really interesting was said. Like basically the management was just like, yeah, you just, if, if, if she says something about a new album to a fan, blah, 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 right. you're just not allowed to say anything. I'm like, I okay I really for don't me, care the craziest ones like that are magic shows like that makes sense where, where they really do make you sign the non-disclosure and then you're backstage and you're like oh that's <laughs> how they did it <laughs> and you're like oh I can't tell anybody like I can't ruin this for anybody no because I mean that really I because it's <laughs> magic's not real it's an illusion but knowing how they do that is like I've definitely YouTube stuff and I'm like, how did blah, 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 blah. And then they break it down and you're like, Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Like when we had the illusionists at the arena, if you were in catering, you were going to sit down with people who were part of the show. Mm -hmm. And then that's when you sort of be like, Oh, and you'd sort of see something first. Like you'd see like, you know, multiple people or something like that, or you'd see like a wig or whatever it might be. And then you'd watch the show and you'd be like, oh, now I get it. (laughs) Oh, that's, yeah. I I haven't been to a magic show yet. You know, and and that was sort of fun. Like, so True North ended up doing these things called TN Touring, where they sort of took a step into doing shows across Western Canada with a focus being on bringing musicals Mm -hmm. to cities that don't have theaters. And you would do like a cut down arena. And so right, you know, a year before COVID, so 2019, I was lucky enough to go on the road with uh, Kinky Boots. Oh, that was a great show. Yeah, it was the exact same one that was here at the convention center or the concert hall. Yeah. And I went on the road and did four shows with them. And they were some of the nicest people. And and you just, uh, you end up singing those songs like for the rest of the week because you've been listening to them, you know, all day, every day. And the crew was fantastic. And uh you know, that's the thing, like when you're out there on the road with them, you sort of, you get that communal feel. Mm-hmm. And again, it even makes you want to try harder to make things good for them. You want them to be happier because if they have a good show, they're just going to be jovial and thankful and and make what you do, you know, a positive experience. And hopefully they'll, you know, that will continue on because if there's good receptions throughout the country, because like, like you said, there's a lot of smaller smaller markets that don't necessarily get to see kinky boots or musicals at all because it just it's tough to get that stuff through there totally yeah 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot before we kind of kind of wrap up, finish, whatever. Um, best show you've seen at the Burt? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, Descendants in 2019 oh, was a big me. favorite for mine. You know, when I started working with True North, I ended up doing No Effects, and I think that was like the second time I did No Effects show. And they're always great, like some of the best crew and and people around. Um. Yeah, way too many to name, I think, but I think both yeah, because I, like I grew up on those bands, yeah, right? Like I don't think I got to go to either of those shows. Well, I know I didn't get to go to either of those shows. Like the last time the No No Effects was here. Was, yeah, like November twenty sixteen. Yes, because that night Chicks Dig It was also playing. Oh, that's right. And, and it's <laughs> funny because KJ was backstage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean, I, I say I didn't get to go and I'm all bummed out about it, but I was in Hawaii. So, I mean, ah. it, you know, it's not the end of the world, but that's one of those things. It's like, I definitely had like a FOMO moment there because I'm like, all my buds are at no effects and having a great time. And I knew that was going to spill over to the Windsor where Chicks Dig It was playing, mm-hmm. which would have been more fun or just as much fun because who doesn't want to go see Chicks Dig It? Like, and I remember one of the toughest ones was I got asked to go work a festival. So Union used to do this festival called Sonic Boom out in Edmonton. Oh, yeah. And uh, it was one year, it was Arctic Monkeys and Jack White, Tegan and Sarah, Serena Ryder. I think that was the same year Rise Against played too with, uh, and I think July Talk played, mm. like tons of great bands. And so I signed up and, you know, when you're working a festival, you have to go out for multiple days ahead of time for the festival build and everything. And the, day i left was the um lincoln park 30 seconds to mars and afi show oh yeah yeah and i was like oh that would have been a great show to like be at and i was i was a little bummed that i couldn't be there for that one but that um, that was a fun show i got to shoot that one for dan yeah i got I'm some sure great cool. shots like just a cool live show and you know even afi being one of the bands you grew up with like other than i had to be at the the soundboard for 30 seconds to mars everyone else i was allowed i think allowed to be up front but them they were like no get to the back i was like man i mean i still got great still got great shots but you know one of those things yeah it's a shame when bands have those strange like like you're like really really do you have to be like this right now Mm -hmm. yeah everybody else is fine with it but you gotta go and make it so that you know it can't just be a fun night and I mean, there, there's definitely some that, and I won't say who it was, but I got to shoot this and I'm like, Ooh, yeah, I should be even farther back. Cause you're, you're, you're looking, you're looking bad, but yeah. Um, I feel like I could, I mean, I know I could talk to you for hours, but, um, one last question and that is what keeps you doing this? Like why? you know, other than you have bills to pay and mortgages and kids, you know, what, yeah. what, what keeps the passion, what keeps the fuel? Because you've been through, you've, you've worked at a record label, you've worked for a promoter, you still currently work for a promoter, but what really, what pushes you to keep doing what you do? The fact that I don't know how to do anything else at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, there's some honesty in that of just like the freedom, right? The the creativity of it all. The fact that every day that I go to work is something different. Something awesome is going to happen or something terrible is going to happen. But 
it's those ebbs and flows of high, super highs and super lows that make it impossible to ever want to go to anything that's droning nine to five paperwork or, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it is really, and as well as just, you get to be a part of it. It's the fact that being the kid who played guitar and wanted to be in bands, you know, it's those who can't do teach kind of thing. It's yeah. like, well, I can't be in a band, but this is the next best thing, I guess, you know, and, and coming at it with an, I think I've got a good attitude of like not being a punter and, and sort of res being respectful of all the acts, good or bad that come through and just, you know, rolling with it. Cause you never know where that band might end up or the next mm -hmm. time you'll see them or, you know, and that happens all the time. It definitely does. One of the bands you just named from uh, the Sonic Boom, July Talk. That yeah. was, that's one of those bands that I saw. They were supposed to play the Albert when the Albert was opening, closing, opening, closing kind of thing. They ended up moving it to La Garage. I went there with 15 people, maybe. And I mean, they, they blew me out of the water then. And the last time they were through was at Bell MTS with Metric. And they're, they just keep getting better and better. And they are the nicest people. They are such sweet folks. Yeah, like one, I remember this one vividly because we were doing a Primus show back in 2014. And the opening band was this like unknown small Portland band called Portugal the Man. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever heard of them. I, I, like the biggest song in the world at one time. Yeah. Came and played the bird to like a sold out show that sold out in a day. Like, you never know who those bands are going to be and you don't want to leave a bad taste in anybody's mouth. No. You want them to Winnipeg. Like that's the good part of being in the industry is that you're championing in the city. You, you know, every bad experience a band has in the city might mean they don't want to come back here. Mm -hmm. might mean like this place sucks. My van got broken into the alley. I got robbed. Something happened. The venue sucked. You know, the fans threw shit at me. Security started to fight with me. Yeah. Like these are all things that have happened to tons of bands. And it's about making sure that it's the good side of everything, that they see, you know, the best representation of the city. Well, thank you so much, Ruben. I really appreciate this. I know, I mean, things aren't as quite hectic as they usually are for you, but I mean, you do have a family, you do have kids, you still are working, thankfully. It's yeah, yeah. It's, it's been amazing to still be, you know, employed in, in a certain time. And I'm really thankful for everything the company's done. Like, I couldn't imagine what it would have been like if I was a freelancer, because as tough as it is in photography, mm -hmm. I don't know how I'm justifying oh. concerts at any point if I was still just doing the production gigs. Right? Yeah. Like you see a bunch of folks like the Bouncing Souls just had a huge um, Bouncing Souls Hot Water Music. Cause they share the same crew, kind yeah. of. Um, they just had a huge... Uh, fundraiser for their you know for the 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 folks behind the scenes and i don't know if you saw that but there was like there was a lot yeah. of cool there was a lot of cool raffle stuff and i i did buy a ticket just because i'm like eh, you know if i can win i don't know if i get a guitar but I, which i'd probably just end up selling because i would prefer to have records but yeah there's a lot of those folks that that's how they make their money because just like you that that's all they know how to do and that's what they're doing and if their band's not out there working, they're not making money because they're not, you know, a green day that has millions upon millions that can, you know, afford to foot the bill for some of their folks. And how many bands still aren't even doing it right. Like mm -hmm. there's just 
people that are out of work and just don't really get the time. And you're really thankful for all the organizations. And in Canada, we've got a bit of a leg up, right? Like we have the true. CERB and EI, but in America where, you know, the St- Save Our Stages Act only came into play a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. you know, because nobody in legislation wanted to pass through, but finally it did get passed through. And unfortunately that's still even just for venues, not necessarily the staff. Mm-hmm. And again, when you're a freelancer, it just means you're out of work. Like we both have tons of friends, even from here in Winnipeg who go out on the road with these bands and yeah. that's how they make their living. And it's tough. And you really feel for them. You try to support as much as you can. I got my lag wagon isolation shirt, you know, <laughs> nice. the merch that they sell to help the, the artists as much as they or the crew as much as they mm-hmm. can. So, but awesome. Thank you for talking to me, Ruben. Hopefully hey, we we'll hopefully we'll get to see you in person sooner than later. Yeah. We'll hang out in the box office like old days. Yeah. Eat some hot sauce and popcorn. Oh yes. Yes. Well, there you go. There was my conversation with Ruben. I hope everybody really enjoyed it. Like I said, barely, barely, barely scratched the surface of the stuff that he's seen, the bands that he's seen. He's always great to talk to. I love, I love talking to Ruben whenever I get the chance. I miss seeing a lot of the, not a lot. I miss everybody that I knew at True North and even some of the people that I didn't know at True North, but always talked to at the shows. I really miss seeing those folks. It's, it's a bummer, you know, at some point we'll have live music again and I can hang out with Ruben and all the other folks over there at True North. So again, big, big thank you to Ruben for taking the time out to talk to me. I know he's a busy guy, you know, maybe not as busy as he has been, but he's a dad. He's busy. I get it. Big thank you, Ruben. Thank you. Uh, also big thank you again to the Sorrells. They, they let me use their music and they're not charging me. Wonderful ladies, new EP in the description. Go buy it. And again, the lovely folks at uh, the WPG, go check them out. Description, you know what to do. But I, I'm i so excited to have these guys as a sponsor. Dusty Wax Records. Go check them out, dustywaxrecords.com. They've they released two of the Pulley albums, or re-released two of the Pulley albums. Just re-released two Guttermouth albums. One variant's already sold out, the Splatter variant, but they I believe they still might have another one very it, it, it'll it sell out so go get it while you can dusty wax dusty wax records.com go check them out and definitely check out our um what do you call it you know the thing that you do we have a giveaway going on over at, uh the it's a music thing instagram page go check out how to win that you can win one of those variants from dusty wax records they've graciously given us one record which you know it's 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 hard to find. It's gonna be it's gonna once it's sold out, it's done. Maybe they'll do a repressing. Who knows? But big thank you to them. Head over to the Instagram page to check out how to win. And yeah, I hope everybody really enjoyed it. We'll see you soon.